everybody, and welcome to Scorch Justice, the podcast covering the murders of Jessica Lynn Chambers and Ming Sheen Show. And I'm Woody Overton, your host. I left you last, I told you that Quentin Tellis had been arrested for the murder of Jessica Lynn Chambers. So we'll skip forward through all the motions and the pretrial stuff and just get to the trial. And this trial, y'all, it just blows my mind. And then remember, I have probably thousands of hours of time spent in courtrooms either testifying in my own cases or on the defense side. So, we'll get started. The trial started on October the 10th of 2017 and they had moved the trial to Pike County, Mississippi, which is about 250 miles away from Panola County or Cortland where Jessica was murdered. The demographics in Pike County are very similar to Cortland as far as race goes and the economics and all that stuff. Ultimately, they selected six blacks and six whites to sit on the jury and they were split men and women. So the judge was Honorable Gerald Chatham, and of course the district attorney, like I told y'all, was John Champion, who had been appointed in 2001. He was a long-running, long-stay, hard-nosed district attorney from North Mississippi. And his assistant district attorney was Jay Hale. Now the defense attorneys were not court-appointed. One's name is Darla Palmer. She was the lead, and then she had Alton Peterson assisting her. Just like I told you about John Champion being pretty on top of his game, well, Darla Palmer was known for the same thing. And I think she was out around Jackson, Mississippi, but she's, you know, pretty darn good. But just to show you, to set how this trial is going to go, everybody gets in the courtroom. The jury now is sequestered, right? They've been picked and they're in their jury room and everybody's in the courtroom, including the TVs and all that, and reporters. It's a high profile deal, and I get that. So the judge starts out and he opens the court and saying, you may call your first witness. But then he realizes the jury isn't in the room. You know, you ask both sides, are you ready to go? And they said, yes, Your Honor, we are. And he said, well, call your first witness. Well, hell, Judge, you got to have a jury to hear the trial. Fuck up, number one. I mean, it's just almost a comedy of errors if, it, if the result hadn't been what it was. But, you know, the judge backs up and says, oh, you know what? I need a jury, don't I? And in the, in the courtroom laughs, right? Judge then says, the jury has already seen me make a few mistakes, and you people out there have not, so I just want you to know I'm a human being, right? Okay, Judge, we get it. They bring the jury in. The judge 
I asked the jury, you know, have y'all discussed the case? And, and they said no. So the first witness is called, and it's Jessica's mama, Lisa Chambers. And she's basically all told you everything that I've told you in previous episodes about the description of Jessica, being the sports, cheerleading, the personality, and, and what happened on the day that she died. The second witness they called was Lakeisha Meyer. And Keisha gets up and she tells how her and Jessica met and became friends and recounting the statements, like I told y'all, about the last day with Jessica. But she said that December the 7th was her birthday and that Jessica had planned a trip for them to go celebrate in Memphis because Keisha was turning 21. Now, y'all, that goes back to Jessica going in the store, remember? and getting $14 worth of gas because she needed a full tank. She was going to take Keisha out to party for her birthday. Keisha testifies that a couple days before the murder that her and Jessica gave Quentin a ride to the sandbox. Yeah, that's the area, remember I told you that they hung out at and partied. When I was a kid, we had a gravel pit, right? Same thing, small town deal. She testified that when Jessica got out of the car, Quentin gave her a hug and didn't didn't want to let go of her. It seemed to her that Quinn didn't want to let go of Jessica and Jessica was uncomfortable about it. Now, remember, they've only known each other like a week at this time, okay? And we know that Quinn's trying to, to have sexual relations with her. Jessica's been playing it all. The prosecution gets done asking Keisha questions and the defense gets up and she asked whether Jessica called Quentin Eric. And naturally, Keisha says no. And she asked on the day of the murder if Quentin was, was smoking. She said yes. And then she asked and said, hey, did you and Jessica ride around and smoke weed a lot? She said yes. And asked her, do you know if Jessica sold marijuana? Keisha said yes asked her closer to December or closer to the time of Jessica's death, was she selling to people every other day? Keisha says yes. The defense asked, do you know the area where Jessica was murdered before it happened? And Keisha said no. And she said, so you aren't sure you drove by there that last day? And Keisha said no. Now let me back up a second. When the uh, prosecution was questioned they asked her on the day of the murder, had they ridden by that spot on Heron Road? And Keisha said yes. So this is a score for the prosecution, if you will, right? Uh, either Keisha was mistaken or she was just lying. So the third witness is called is Glenn Williams. And Glenn was riding with Troy Rudd down Heron Road. Remember I told y'all that, the, the guys that saw the fire? He said they were drinking and going to Cortland from Benson and they saw a fire on the top of the trees a couple of hills from where the car was. They get to the car and it stopped and got out on the side of the road after they passed the car up just a little bit. They said the fire was in the road and they thought someone caught the car on the fire for insurance money. They were driving down Heron Road to a place they call it the Heron Sub or the Heron Subdivision for a party. And it was Troy 
Troy Rudd, who actually called the Cortland Fire Department. They said when they got to the Heron subdivision, they heard the fire trucks and stuff going by. But they described the, the fire as the car was fully consumed and the fire was as tall as the trees, at least 30 to 35 feet tall, burning. Now y'all remember, I told you I was there. I've stood on that spot and there's still burn marks on the trees to this day and it was massive, much more so than what it, it, you hear in any description on the TV shows or these podcasts or news articles. I'm telling you, from my personal experience, the fire was massive because you could still see the burn marks on the trees. The defense gets up and Troy Rudd, the guy who actually made the calls from Lambert, Mississippi, there's still questioning about the fire. And it said that there was a tree popping on the top of the hill and they were concerned that the tree would fall on his truck. And he was looking back, he was looking for someone, but he didn't see anyone. And they both got out and saw that the entire car was burning all the way up the trees. The heat was in the street and they stayed there for about two minutes and there were no first responders. And when they got up the hill by the Heron subdivision, they heard the sirens go by and they were not sure who he called, but assumes the Cortland Fire Department. They gave statements to law enforcement the next day or the day after. They think, they think someone contacted him, but they kept calling back to ask if they saw anyone. And he doesn't recall he talked to the specific people but guess what, y'all? These guys, this is from a defense standpoint, my, my point of view, these guys should have been treated as suspects. When I tell you that the family and everybody comes first, well, guess what? Whoever discovers the body, even though they said there was nobody around the car, whoever discovers it, that's your number one suspect. But they didn't do any kind of DNA testing or you know, follow up with them or anything like that. So the fourth witness gets on stand is Cole Haley. He was the first, first responder from the volunteer fire department, which I told y'all is only like six tenths of a mile away. He was the chief of the fire department at that time and had been out on another call before the Heron Road call, before Jessica's call came in. After that call that they had been out on, they went back to the station like to clean up and it was Cole and Jody's mom and Seth Cook at the station cleaning, cleaning up from the previous call when Jessica's call comes in. Eight twelve p.m., they got the call about a car fire. Cole told the others to take engine 84 and that he was second behind them on engine 81, the pumper. Y'all, that's the one that pumps all the water out. He says it's a mile and a half away, and that's not true because I've driven it from there. It's much closer. Even if you Google it on a map, it shows you differently. But I'm telling you, I clocked it on my odometer, and I don't remember the exact mileage, but it was it was really close. So when he arrived, he pulled around the truck 84 to where the car was on fire, and he saw Jessica in the road and the car on fire. He immediately gets out of the truck and raised up a compartment and got a blanket and went to Jessica. And he asked her, who did this to you? He says he could not understand her, that she tried to say something. And the only time he heard a name was after Danielle Cole got there and the medical staff got there and a deputy. 
They were bandaging her up. They kept asking her who did this, who did this over and over. Then he heard them, not Jessica. He heard them being the first responders in the medical team say Eric. He never heard her say Eric or Derek. He thinks he should have asked her more questions, but didn't because he knew it was hard for her to talk and speak. She was fading in and out on him, and he kept her alert until the medical staff showed up. And when Daniel Cole, the head of civil defense of Panola County uh, and emergency operations, when she told him she was set on fire, he hollered to Jody and to Seth to just drown out the fire on the car to try to preserve any evidence that might be left inside. Now, y'all, those forces of the hose are just unbelievable, right? I mean, you could blow anything. You could almost slip the damn car with them. So he says he, he's testifying, and he continues. He says that he was focused on Jessica, but the car was on fire from the inside. He could tell this based on his experience. He said he'd seen electrical problems in cars make fire, and they'll make grass fires around the car, not just inside the car. He said the fire was inside the car along the edges of the car, and there was no grass fire around the car. Now, y'all, that fits with them finding the two lighters I told you about and the cell phone that had a separated battery. He said they drowned out instead of the power streaming or full force firefighting. They drowned it out in an attempt to save evidence. They reduced the nozzle to just flooding so it wouldn't blow stuff out of the car. All right, so the defense gets up and starts to question him. The defense attorney asked him, he said, on December the 7th, did you complete your written statement? Cole says, yes. He defends his statement. He said, it was fresh on my mind yeah, I was dazed for weeks all the time, but his statement, yeah, I was only 13 lines. In his written statement, the defense has it in front of him now. In his written statement, he writes, when he asked Jessica, who did this to you? She said something that sounded like Eric. All right, now Cole's stumbling his words and he's confused. He wrote in his statement that he kept her talking. He says, he meant alert. She was saying, I'm going to die. And he said, no, you're not. He said her words are garbled. He says again, he did not personally hear her say Eric, that he heard the other people say that she said Eric. Y'all, it's huge. You get up on the stand and you fucking testify that you hear her say Eric or Derek, and you wrap her in the blanket and you hear her say that, but now... You testify that. You sworn oath and you testify that. But in your written statement, you say no. You never heard her say that. How in the fuck does the district attorney not prepare this guy for trial and catch this? I mean, how do you not catch this? So the defense is done with him. The prosecution gets up on redirect and asks him, did you hear Daniel Cole say Eric and you add it to your report? And he said, yeah, 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 that's, that's what I did total fuck up, okay? The fifth witness to take the stand was Jody's mom that drove the first truck. She said that Jessica looked like a zombie. There were heavy flames on the passenger side of the car with heavy flame out of the passenger area. 
not in the engine or the trunk, but inside. Cook looked over and saw an object in the woods, and it actually was someone coming out of the woods. And the only light was from the fire. She said it looked like, appeared to be a zombie coming out of the woods, and that this person had third degree burns and their sinus cavity was hanging out of her nose. The lips were black and dried, she had problems breathing in a deep voice. Said he could understand what she said, and he knew she was going into shock. He called for med stat, that means as fast as they can, y'all, and told dispatch they needed deputies on the scene. And he went to put the fire out, and everyone knew their duties. So the defense gets up and asks him, said, hey, you wrote a statement on December 6th. The DA objects. Object to the statement. The judge overruled. So he answers. It says, myself and the fire chief was working on the young lady until the medical staff got there, and he kept asking her what happened, and that's when she told us, meaning the guy who just said he never heard it in his report. But on the stand, he said he heard her say Eric or Derek. This guy saying, that's when she told us, Eric set her on fire. I said, could you understand her? And he said, yes. He said, you got an immediate response that she had trouble breathing? I said, yes. And he said, the sinus cavities are hanging out of her nose? Yes. All right, so the next witnesses, y'all, there's, there's numerous of them, and, and basically they all the same, say the same thing. But Melissa Roger was the first responder. David Gamble was from the fire department. Bradley Dixon was an ambulance EMT. Joshua Perkins, also an ambulance paramedic. And Will Turner. Well, let me back up for Will Turner. They all said that they heard Jessica, and they all testified, take the stand and testify, that they heard Jessica say, Eric or Derek did it. And they were questioning, who did this to you? Eric or Derek? And so that's one, two, three, four people that get on the stand and, and say they heard her say Eric or Derek. Will Turner gets up to testify. Now, y'all remember I told you they, one of the first responders saw a black male on the scene? He gets up and he testifies that he saw a middle-aged black man hanging around. Will tells him, hey, you can't be here, dude. And the man didn't say anything, but seemed to look through Will to the car. And he walked away looking over his shoulder. He had on a blue shirt, and by the time he got out of sight, he had on a white shirt, implying this guy took his shirt off. I, I, don't, I don't get it, y'all. And a whole bunch of these people testified. Anyway, moving forward. So Matthew Simon, who is with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, ATF, the friend, their forensic guy from Atlanta, Georgia, takes a stand. He said he analyzed the casework, and the only thing that had ignitable fluids or liquids on it was a piece of her bra that they had found. Now, I never mentioned the bra before, and that's okay, but the this little bitty tiny piece of the bra had evidently an accelerant on it or gas or whatever they used. 
So then Dr. Aaron Barnhart, who actually conducted Jessica's autopsy, took the stand and he testifies, or they just testify that the cause of death was smoke inhalation and thermal injuries, and it was a homicide. There were no blunt force injuries, and the toxicology report showed the presence of marijuana, but no rape kit was done. Again, I told y'all how I felt about that in the last episode. Why in the hell wouldn't you do a rape kit when you have a naked, burn-up young lady as your victim? So then Dustin Blunt with the FBI gets up and testifies that he spoke with Quentin a week after Jessica's murder on December the 18th, and he went to the residence. He said Quentin was cooperative, and when asked about the gas can in the shed, Quentin says it's his. Asked about his relationship with Jessica. He said they struck up a friendship quickly. They rode around numerous times together. Had sex one time in the side yard on the south of the residence. And they were in her vehicle when they were having sex and the passenger seat was reclined back and she was on top of him. But he also testifies that Quinn tells him he deleted Jessica's information from his phone a few days after she died. But guess what? Dustin Blunt with the FBI, your top law enforcement agency in the United States of America, never asked him why. The defense, they asked him, did you ask him why he deleted it? Uh, no, I didn't ask him. What the fuck? Are you kidding me? I mean, we, we know what he's told other people since then, but this guy... The top law enforcement agency in the United States of America never asked why he, and actually he immediately deleted everything. So the trial goes on, and the and the jury gets to go on a field trip to all the pertinent places uh, in Jessica's murder, if you will. First, they went to the impound lot, the sheriff's office, to see the car. Well, what do you, what the fuck? Yeah, I mean, you could show that on, on video or whatever, but I guess get them out of the courtroom, show them the car, you see a burnt-up piece of metal that was never processed, and, you know, we know what kind of shit show that was. Then they took them to the M&M Quick Mart, which is the store I told y'all is daggling across the street from Quinn's house. Then they took them to Quinn's house right across the street, and then they took them to the crime scene. What the defense established in this show when they went to the crime scene was that the report says Jessica came walking out of the woods from across the street from the burning vehicle, but that area was never marked as a crime scene and it was never searched. I mean, shit, for all they know, there could have been 10 bad guys in the woods with flamethrowers. Nobody knows because they didn't do their job. All right, so then... They call Major Barry Thompson, who is the lead investigator for Panola County Sheriff's Office. And he testifies that their focus was on Eric and Derek, but Quinn was on their radar early. He said Quinn told Barry that he believed Derek Holmes had been stalking Jessica. Now, y'all, that's the sex offender I told you about that Quinn said, and it's proved that this, this guy was at home rubbing his mama's feet that night. Quinn says, this is what Major Barry Thompson testifying, says Quinn says he was with Big Mike or Michael Sanford and Taryn Shigog at the time of the fire and they were not in town. 
defense gets up, cross-examines him. So they say, hey, what is the timeline for Jessica's murder or the time when Quinn was with Jessica? Major Barry Thompson, the number one investigator, has to admit he doesn't have one. He doesn't know. And he estimated the time of the crime. What the fuck? But it gets better. Listen to this. He says he was out of town for the first couple of days, but he ran the investigation and communicated orders by phone. And he was the one that ordered the car to be moved to the impound lot after immediately after it was put out. Okay, so I have a real fucking problem with this. This guy should have never took the fucking stand. He has no direct knowledge. He can't even tell you the timeline of the crime. All he can tell you is when in his detective calls, oh shit, we got it's gonna be a homicide. He is out of town. He's out of town for days. And he calls him and he's like, oh, we got a burn up car, girls burn up, whatever. Uh, put the car out, haul it to the impound lot. But he doesn't even have, you could get it on the stand and testify in a murder trial and you don't even know a timeline. You can't, you don't expect the defense attorney to ask you a timeline of what happened. And you aren't even in town. You never saw the car burning. You never saw Jessica. You never did any of this shit. Crazy, y'all. Crazy. But here's the kicker. When pressed further, Major Barry Thompson, he defends that it was secure and he wanted to process the area in daylight, but no one stayed there. Now listen, Hoss, let's say it's a fuck up. You're out of town and, you, and, and there's not someone on scene actually handling the crime scene and you're so fucking egomaniacal that you think that this thing will come back to bite you in the ass one day, that you're gonna, you're gonna run it from afar. You ordered the car move, then you say, you have the balls to testify in court and say, but, but the crime scene was secure. Bullshit. You never put up any tape. They never did anything, right? I mean, they didn't do dick. But you you testify under sworn oath that you wanted to process the area in daylight, but you didn't have anybody stay there. What should have been done is what I told y'all. Even if they didn't have lights to do on the scene, they should have roped that whole damn side of that mountain off. That's what I call it, the big hill off and nobody should have been able to come in and out. They should put guards on it, and they should have combed that bitch with a fine-tuned coat in the daylight. He said he wanted to do it, but no one stayed there to do it. Fucking ridiculous. He's pressed further about processing the crime scene, and he says he thinks the FBI and some of his guys took a search and rescue team to walk the area looking for evidence, but he doesn't know the date. Well, let's talk about that. You are lying because your ass is caught in a crack. And the one thing you should never do on the stand is make up bullshit. And now he's digging his hole deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah, he's running from out of town because he's I guess, narcissist or whatever, doesn't have faith in his people. And he says, you know, he's ordered the car to be hauled in. He says the scene was secure, you know, and I wanted to process it in daylight, but you know what? Fuck, mm, nobody stayed there. 
the, the kicker, he thinks the FBI and some of his guys took a search and rescue team to walk the area looking for evidence, but he doesn't know the date. In law enforcement, they have a saying, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. This asshole further compounds the fact that it's getting really screwed up. He doesn't know the date. You know what? Either the search happened, which I don't think it did, or the search didn't happen. Either it's written down somewhere, which I don't think it is, or you are just blowing fucking smoke. Now listen, there's a jury listening to this. 12 jurors. What are they thinking? Okay, this leaves it wide open to anything. The area's never fucking searched. And you get this guy on the stand, he's telling you, I can't even give you a timeline, but you know what, it was secure. I wanted to search, I mean, it's just, I can't get off it because it just blows my fucking mind. It just blows my mind. I can only imagine what the jury was thinking. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life is full of twists and turns, stress, changes, grief, moments of growth, and moments where we feel like we're taking a few steps back. And it's important to show up for yourself through all of the struggles that life can bring. BetterHelp Online Therapy is here for the twists and turns and will assess your needs and can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. Y'all, I use it. I'm telling you, I've got so much going on. It just helps me to be able to talk to a professional and they can give me a different insight and tell me how to better take care of myself. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online and the services available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room with additional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. BetterHelp is a great way to show up for yourself and invest in your well-being because, well, you deserve some inner peace. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit BetterHelp.com, that's BetterHelp, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. Special offer for Scorch Justice listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash S-C-O-R-C-H-E-D. That's 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com S-C-O-R-C-H-E-D. That's BetterHelp.com slash Scorched. He goes on and says that he never had a conversation. He compounds his last lie. He never had a conversation with Lieutenant Dixon 
about the crime scene collection. But wait a minute, chief, investigator, you saying that you wanted it searched, you wanted people to say to daylight and you wanted it searched, but they didn't. You never roped off the scene. You think the FBI and a search team went back later, but you're not sure. All right. But first of all, let me tell you this. If they go back days later, it wouldn't make a fuck. Any good defense attorney is going to say anything that you find days later and that's not contained inside that crime scene, it's fucking inadmissible. Or, or yeah, no, you know what? As a defense attorney, I wanted it to be admissible. Hell yeah. Bring that in. Because now I'm going to say it was planted, right? Whoever murdered Jessica Chambers, if they had any fuck-ups. And let me tell you something. There is no perfect murder. There is no perfect homicide. You will always leave something behind. And she came out of the woods on the opposite side of the burning car. They never searched it. They should have contained it. They should have searched it. And he's saying that they went back days later, but he's not sure. He thinks they went back days later. Well, guess what, asshole? Anything they would have found would have helped the defense. But he's not even sure about it. Now, Lieutenant Dixon, the guy that was actually running shit, that was there and saw everything and all that stuff, he says he never talked to him. Never talked to him about collecting anything from the crime scene. Outrageous, people. Out-freaking-rageous. So let's fast forward. Lieutenant Dixon is called as a witness next. He says he's, he's the investigator for Panola County. And when he arrived on the scene, he couldn't tell the color of the car and that the car was wedged between trees and the driver's side door was blocked. But he says he began to mark evidence. One, he marked the burn vehicle. Two, he marks the cell phone that's laying on the ground by the car. Three, he marks the back of the cell phone, which is laying right next to the cell phone. Four, he marks a lighter. And the fifth piece of evidence he marked is another lighter. Now, he says there's a wooded area on the other side of the vehicle, but he doesn't know if there's a fence. Y'all, I've been there. There's no fence. There's a gate, a metal gate to the right side of the vehicle. There's an embankment where the car was jammed in. There's no fucking fence. He doesn't even know if there's a fence. Where's your crime scene photos? Hmm. Maybe they didn't take those either, right? Don't lie on the stand, people, because nine times out of ten, the prosecution is already going to know the answer to the questions they're going to ask you, or the, the defense. Either side. They know the question, answer the questions they're going to ask you. The one thing they teach lawyers is not to ask a question you don't know the answer to. So, Lieutenant Dixon says he lives in Sardis, S-A-R-D-I-S, Mississippi, but he doesn't know how far it is from Cortland's courthouse. And they were like, what do you mean? Yeah, how long have you been there? For? Like, forever. And you don't know how long it takes you to get to court from your house nope at this point 
the dude's kind of pissed off, y'all, and he's being defensive. I watched the video. When he's questioned about it, he said he doesn't even know how long it takes him to get to work. Well, now he's just being an asshole. But it looks, what he's not thinking about is how bad this looks for the jury. Because if, you, if you're caught lying about one thing, then you lie about everything. Oh, Lord. He said he doesn't know who was at the scene when he arrived of the car fire and where Jessica was burned up. He admits there were no measurements taken at the scene. He said he considered the burnt vehicle in the outskirts of the vehicle to be his crime scene. Now, when he's asked about it, I mean, I told you a million times how it should have been done. He only looks right around the edge of the vehicle. He, he testifies that his crime scene in his mind was the burnt vehicle in right outside the vehicle. He said his crime scene did not extend to the other side of the fence. He said he didn't go on the other side of the fence. And he didn't know if his men did or not. But he also admits he didn't direct anyone to go to the other side of the fence. Y'all, there's no fucking fence. There was a gate he's talking about on the same side where the car was. There's no fence. And flip it over. Jessica came out of the other side of the woods from the other side of the road. I think everybody in the world knows where the crime scene should have been. Lieutenant Dixon continues and he says he was unsure when the vehicle arrived at the sheriff's office. Fuck up, okay? When you that vehicle gets towed out, by the tow truck, we call them 79s. The tow truck tows it out. You have a deputy follow the vehicle in case anything blows off. First of all, the vehicle should have been covered and tarped, but if anything blows out, then they could call somebody to go get it and see what it was in case it's evidence. And this happens all the time, y'all. Pieces of stuff will blow out of car when you're transporting it. But if, more importantly, you're establishing the chain of custody. A defense attorney will have a field day if there was anything that was found in the car, well, they could say, well, fuck, it happened on the ride there. You didn't have anybody follow them to, to the sheriff's office. You know, you, you don't even know when the car got to the sheriff's office. You got to establish the log. You would call it in on the radio, uh, be en route to the uh, impound yard, following the 79 of the burnout vehicle, start time and such and such. And when you get there, you'll say 1097 on location, vehicle's been secured, and then the dispatch would have logged in what time that ended, y'all. I'm gonna take the last jab at these idiots. Lieutenant Dixon further states, he doesn't even know who moved the vehicle. By this time he's pissed off and he tells the defense, when the defense asks him, do you, do you know who moved the vehicle? He said, I know I don't know who moved the vehicle. And they're like, what do you mean you don't know who moved the vehicle? I mean, y'all chain of custody is fucked. It's gone. He says, he gets smart with the defense attorney and says, go check your records if you want to know who moved the vehicle. Oh my goodness. From a professional standpoint, the lack of expertise 
in the way that this crime scene was handled is just shocking, okay? Shocking to my senses. From the defense and a law enforcement professional standpoint, remember I've done both my careers, right? I'm certified in all U.S. federal courts as an expert witness in law enforcement matters. It's shocking. But for these people to get on the stand, and first of all, they weren't prepared from the first responder who wrote in his report that he heard her say Eric or Derek, gets on the stand and testifies that he heard her say Eric or Derek, but in his report, he says he didn't. I mean, it's just everything I just read y'all for the last 40 something minutes, it's just been a shit show after shit show after shit show after shit show. And these motherfuckers should be ashamed of themselves. I'm an old school cop. I also believe in doing the job correctly, especially on a homicide case. You only, normally, only get one chance, and they fucked it up from the get-go. Even the judge messes up when he says, call your first witness and the damn jury's not in the room. This is one of the main reasons I'm doing Scorch Justice. Overton, your host of Scorch Justice. The next episode, I'm going to continue the trial. Scorch Justice is a production of Cloud 10 Media and Real Life Real Crime Productions. The show is executive produced by Cindy and Woody Overton and Sim Sarn for Cloud 10 Media. Matt Provisano is our supervising sound editor. The music is by Josh Cook. Artwork by Brian Stephanie. Be sure to download, subscribe, and like Scorch Justice anywhere you can download a podcast. You can follow me, Woody Overton, on Instagram at Overton Woody and at Real Life Real Crime to hear what I've got coming next. Thank you. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.